Welcome to episode 12 of the Composer Happy Hour, presented by Whatever and Ever Amen. I'm hoping you already have a drink in hand, but if not, now is a great time to hit pause and pour one. You deserve it. If you're not already following Whatever and Ever Amen on social media, we would love to have you join our community. You can find us on Facebook and Instagram at Whatever and Ever Amen, and on Twitter at Whatever Choir. Our guest today is Christopher Harris. Chris is the Director of Choral Activities at Arkansas Tech University, and this is perhaps the role for which most people know him. In fact, he is aware that some people are a bit surprised when they find out how many pieces of choral music are in his catalog. He's written some gorgeous music, and if you weren't aware of his compositions prior to the episode, you're in for a treat. Today, we discuss his drive to compose, the MBA, and the one fast food restaurant that nobody should miss out on. My name is Brad Pearson, my guest today is Christopher Harris, and this is the Composer Happy Hour. Chris, welcome to the Composer Happy Hour. How are you, sir? I am doing well. How are you doing? I'm doing very well. Uh, I'm actually, I'm pretty excited for this drink. It's much needed after a long day. Uh, I know you had a long day too. You, you actually, you just walked in the door, right? Yes, I sure did. Yeah. Yeah. So we're we're both ready for a drink. Uh, tell us what it, what are you drinking today? I just have some simple white wine. I'm gonna be drinking some Moscato. It's called Menage à Toi Sweet Collection, uh, sweet white blend. Just some white wine. All right. It's yeah. Some. Yeah. Something you just had around the house. Are you? Uh, yeah. Nice. Are you? Are you normally a, a wine drinker versus beer versus spirits? Is wine kind of the go-to? uh if i'm if i'm going to have drinks uh i, I do like white wine i like sweet wine I like the sweetest of white wines dessert yeah. wine specifically um i'm not really a beer guy uh yeah it may be maybe a mixed drink if we are you know in a social gathering something like that but yeah, yeah. I, I, I do like white sweet wine yeah cool that is um maybe not my uh go-to uh you know i like uh I like wine, but I normally go for reds, kind of uh, a little more earthy, full-bodied. Uh, you know, I like, um, actually, I'm really into Chianti, uh, kind of uh, not super fruity, but pretty bold in flavor. Uh, that's kind of my go-to as far as wines go. Yeah, I've tried some reds, but even those still have to be like, I don't know what, what, what the different types are, but they have to be pretty sweet, yeah. like uh, sure. very fruity. Uh, if I'm going to, if I'm going to do wine, uh, if it's like a mixed drink, then I'm pretty simple, like a, a crown and Coke or like a rum and Coke, some kind of, yeah. kind of situation. Cool. Well, I'm actually, I am drinking something relatively sweet tonight. So this is uh, for the fifth episode in a row. Uh, we have a, a bit of a sponsor for the episode. Um, Four Fires Meadery is a meadery in town. Um, and if you're not sure what mead is, I'll, I'll tell you momentarily, but this is their sorry mead which is a maple coffee honey wine. And it was aged in uh, beer barrels, Toppling Goliath Kentucky brunch barrels. So Toppling Goliath is a brewery in Iowa and they make a beer called Kentucky brunch, which is a big coffee stout um, that they age in old whiskey barrels. So this meadery took those barrels after they'd been aged in whiskey and then aged in beer and then they put their maple coffee honey wine inside there. Um, and so that's uh, what I'm drinking tonight. I'm pretty, pretty excited about it. Uh, have you had mead before? No, I have not. So 
Yeah. So it's honey, right? I mean, is the is the kind of sugar that gets the alcohol going. So it's really sweet. So you actually you you might dig it. Um, and it's fourteen percent, kind of like wine. Um, and uh, yeah, this is maple coffee. Uh, flavor. So uh, going to be pretty, pretty nice. dessert-like. So I'm, I'm excited. So, uh, hey, cheers. Cheers. All right. There you go. Oh yeah, that's good. Uh, all right. So uh, how are things, man? I mean, what's, what's, what's good in life? Is there anything uh, you're like on fire excited about right now? Tell me about what's happening in your life. Ah. Uh... So, you know, we're, we're kind of going back to normal, whatever that means now. Whatever that means. And, yeah. <laughs> and, you know, my, my choirs at, at, at my, my school have been meeting face to face, which is awesome. Making music with people live in the same room is just, it's just awesome. You know, uh, you kind of take for granted, you know, as musicians who do this every day for a living, mm -hmm. all the time, day in, day out, you take for granted a little bit how much of your life force it is on a daily basis. So we missed out on that the last, uh, I guess, two and a half semesters. So now we're face to face fully. And we just had a concert. My, my top mixed choir had a concert this past Sunday. Nice. My men's and women's courses are getting ready for another concert this upcoming Tuesday. So just it's right in the, the nitty gritty of, of like concertizing. So that's always awesome. I mean, I love love music. That's my, my life. Anytime I can make music, choral music specifically, I'm pretty happy. So, uh, you know, it's, it's going really well. I'm, I'm excited about the music we're getting ready to do for our, our December concert. It's called the Feast of Carols. So we're getting ready for that. And we're also kind of also getting ready just because of the timeline for a performance at the SWACTA convention. So all those things are, are, yeah. you know, uh, in the fire, so to speak. Yeah. Lots of so, exciting uh, stuff. I have a couple of follow-ups first, obviously you're here today in your role as composer. Um, and that's, we're going to be talking about music that you've written, but that's not uh, the only thing that you do. Uh, you're, you're a conductor and most of your schooling is in conducting. And we'll maybe talk a little bit about that later on. Um, but tell people where you uh, are currently teaching. Yeah, currently I am in Russellville, Arkansas. I'm the director of choral activities at Arkansas Tech University. Uh, and this is my fifth year here and everything's nice. going quite well. Good. Uh, and I was going to ask, uh, uh, when you get into this kind of concert season mode, um, do you suffer from uh, kind of a letdown after concerts? Do you do you feel like a post-concert blues or are you one of those people like you hit the ground running right into whatever comes next? I'm, I'm pretty much always hit the ground running for whatever I do, whatever capacity it's in. Um, it's strange because for the first time in my collegiate teaching career, we've had a fall concert without everything else that comes along with it. Like we have yeah. a family day concert. We have a first responders event. We have our choir tour where we're, you know, three or four days touring. We sometimes do up to 10 concerts. And then usually we end that with our home concert, fall concert. And this year it was just that first time we performed this fall concert. So, um, and I mean, it's just so much, man. I, I'm just, I'm, I'm equally ecstatic to get the whole thing over with because it's so much just to, to get that, yeah. that production uh, successfully completed. Um, so, you know, I'm, but I'm always like, on to the next thing. Like, let's go, you know <laughs> full, full speed ahead. 
I think even if I hadn't asked you that question, people would have known that from from hearing you talk because you do, you you bring a sense of enthusiasm uh, to to uh, pretty much anything I've ever heard you talk about, and I think that's really cool. You're just you're kind of you're up and excited all the time, which is cool. Uh, now I wanted to ask you, uh, you have. Uh, a connection. I mean, I'm sure you know many of the the guests we've had on previous episodes, but you have a, a specific connection to two, one of whom you'll you'll know uh, what the connection is, and one of whom you may not. So I, oh. I want to ask you a little Uh-oh. bit about that. So now I'm um, worried. Let me now, take a drink. Yeah. <laughs> so uh, correct me if I'm wrong, um, but you. I don't know if it, you grew up with, but I think grew up with uh, Mari Valverde. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And she I was, did. I think, on episode three. So you guys, I mean, you're like friends from way back. Yeah. Uh, she's two years younger than me. And we went to like all the same schools, same school yeah. district uh, in Texas. Uh, in Hearst, we went to Hearst, Ulysses, Bedford Independent School District and went th- through uh, Hearst Hills, Hearst Junior High, through El Bell High School. And nice. uh, her brother and I are actually we're actually in the same grade. So Got it. he and I like always competed against each other. Well, I shouldn't say competed. We sang in the same choirs, but when we, when I was a tenor one, he was also a tenor one. We competed against each other. And I know how that goes. And, yeah. yeah. And, and Marty was two years younger. Yeah. So we're, we're always around. So our final years in high school, we were actually like at the same all state camps and all state rehearsals and, and all that jazz at my high school. We were never in the same choir at the same time, just because of how the high school was set up. But, Oh yeah, from 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 literally from like kindergarten, first second grade, uh, we've known each other. Very cool. Uh, well, for people who who haven't heard all the episodes, if anybody's just tuning in to hear uh, the Chris Harris episode, uh, you can go back. I think again, I think it was episode three, uh, and Mari was our guest, and she was wonderful and uh, enjoyed that. Now the other one, I don't know if you're going to remember this at all, and I'll tell you, I didn't remember it. But when you and I we talked on the phone a couple weeks ago. And uh-huh. I said, uh, I said, I'm, I'm almost positive we've met in person and like actually talked to each other and couldn't remember where, but I, at first I said, I thought that we were introduced by uh, our mutual friend, Andy Morgan, who's also mm-hmm. a, a college professor in Arkansas. And you said, oh yeah, yeah, that must've been it. Now, I think that did happen, but tell me if you remember this because I did not. I was talking with Matt Hazard, our guest in the last episode. And we were talking about when he and I had first met. He said, oh, yeah, we we met for sure in Kansas City at a bar uh, late in the evening. And yes. I, I said, I talked. I said, I remember that night. I said, I talked with uh, Marcus Carline, a composer, and Amy Gordon, a composer. And I said, I think I met you there. And he said, yeah, we definitely met. And I said, oh, I don't think we talked very much. And he said, no, we didn't. Because you were sitting at a table. He's talking about me. He said, Brad, you were sitting at a table with John Talberg and Brandon Elliott and Chris Harris. And you were all talking that night about a solo you had heard earlier. Like, I, I don't know. We apparently yeah, had a long conversation. It. That was at uh, National ACDA. Yes, I remember yeah. now. I didn't remember this at all. But then when he, <laughs> he reminded me of this and I thought, what a great table that was. That was a great, I remember it being a, a great conversation. I just he had to like trigger that memory for me. So do you remember this? Man, now that you say it, it's <laughs> all coming back to me. I remember that it was after, it was actually, I think after, uh, I think we had just heard the Brock Commission 
which was a silent taunts me, which was wonderful, but it was also like Seraphic Fires concert, if I Correct. recall. Correct. Right. After National ACDA. Yep, that's it. And I, I think, I don't remember what the exact content of the conversation was, but I think there was a solo that maybe had, uh, maybe brought some mixed reviews uh, from some of us at the table. And uh, I don't remember if I thought it was wonderful or if uh, I thought it was less wonderful. I just know, apparently there was some debate about that. So uh, I recall. Anyway. We, we have, uh, uh, it turns out, in fact, sat for a, some period of time and had a drink and discussed choral music before. So this is not the first time we've done this. Yeah, I, I, I'm so glad you said that. Um, I got to thank Matt, who I love Matt. Matt Hazard. Oh, my yeah. gosh. His, oh, he's such a good composer. Such a wonderful human being. Just yeah, wonderful human being. And, yeah, we had a good uh, conversation. Glad he reminded you because I would have been racking my brain probably forever and not remember at that moment. But I remember this now. Well, I think um, for anybody who's not a not a choral director, people who don't go to these conventions, especially a national convention, you see so many people in such a short amount of time. And then for me, a lot of these conventions run together. You know, I don't remember who I talked to, which I just I, exactly I mean, it's all meaningful experiences when you're in the moment, but they they just bleed together afterwards because it is so many people and you're trying to, you know, meet lots of new people and reconnect with people that maybe you haven't, you know, hung out with since the previous year or uh, whatever. So uh, there it is. Yeah. Uh, so I want to, I want to get to know a little bit more about you. Uh, tell us when and where you were born. Uh, yes, I was born in Dallas, Texas uh, in on September 10th, 1985. I'm September 12th. How about that? We're close. Oh, Virgo power. Yeah. There you go. Man, that's good uh, stuff. And uh, what are your parents' names? Uh, my parents are Sherilyn and James. And uh, what did Sherilyn and James do or what do they do or what did they do when you were growing up? Wow. They were both into computers. Uh, my mom was like a program uh, a program manager and my dad was like a systems analyst it was all these okay. buzzwords for computer folks um they both worked for like uh american airlines and for like ibm cool um, and they were doing that uh when you were born like in the mid 80s oh i don't know about that well, I don't know if okay so some some version of that they may they may have been yeah you know lower on the totem pole for those companies but yeah yeah cool uh, well, I just mean anybody who was doing anything with computers in the mid eighties, uh, that's kind of cool because, you know, not everybody had a computer then, you know, like today, right. it's a different time. Which for all you college students that might be watching, there was a time <laughs> when we didn't have computers. I know. Yeah, wow. Right. <laughs> um, and so, uh, were your parents, uh, musical? Did, uh, they sing, did they play instruments or, or what was, what was that like? Yeah, um, my my mom and my family could sing. The, uh, the 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 genre of music that I loved, like choral music, classical music, um, there wasn't anyone in my family that was doing that. But apparently, like my grandmother and my aunt and other people had sung in choir and had had been in even classical choirs and classical yeah. choirs and you know traditional choir in high school and things like that my mom could sing but it wasn't like um her thing uh mm -hmm. but yeah she could definitely sing and did they uh 
I mean, did they listen to music around the house? Not choral, but did they listen to, I mean, were oh. they into pop music? What, what, what were they listening to? What was like the soundtrack oh, yeah. of your house when you were young? Oh yeah. Uh, I mean, for everything, this is pretty typical in like the black culture. I mean, there's, there's music to celebrate everything. Yeah. Dinner, cleaning, Sunday, <laughs> uh, you know, su Sunday, uh, church, all everything, family reunions. And so we to a lot of like, um, uh, Isley, Isley brothers. Really, I, I personally listened to a, uh, a lot of Brian McKnight growing up. My mom listened to a lot of, uh, uh Aretha Franklin, Luther Vandross, um, um, Anita Baker, you know, my, yeah. my dad loved Jimi Hendrix. Um, you know, I could go Earl Clue, you know, a yeah. lot of these kinds of people. Yeah, absolutely. That was like daily in our household. Absolutely. And was it, were you, did you enjoy the music that they listened to or was it not your scene? I mean, were, did you appreciate what they appreciated? Yeah. Oh, definitely. So I, I will say I learned young, I didn't know better at the time, but I learned young that I had an affinity for singing and for mm -hmm. any time that there was music that didn't have singing, I just didn't enjoy it as much for whatever the reasons. My dad was into a lot of jazz. He was into a lot of um, um, like instrumental things. Um, like I said, Jimi Hendrix, things like that. And I enjoyed a lot of that stuff, but whenever there wasn't singing, I was always like, you're just, just less interested. Yeah. Uh, and so, uh, when did, obviously music in the house all the time, when, when did that turn into anything kind of formal for you? What was the first like organized, uh, lessons or, or ensemble that you were part of? You know, this is so interesting. I was thinking about this the other day. So one of my students asked me this and I get asked this a lot. Uh, so it's funny because I, I, I tried out for, we had an honor choir when I was in elementary, like third, fourth and fifth and sixth grade. And I tried out for it and I didn't make it. I remember not making it. And at that point, I, music wasn't a, a thing in my life. It was just, you know, you know, in your elementary school, you got to do art, PE, music and there's a the rotation in my district that's what we did but it wasn't until I got to seventh grade and quite literally it was totally arbitrary we had three electives that we chose I chose athletics I've always been an athlete um so definitely athletics so Spanish as my second elective and I had a third elective and my older brother and older sister had both been in choir so literally arbitrarily I just chose music and the first day of school in seventh grade, they put me in band. And I remember being angry, like, <laughs> like, like ready to fight. Like, I don't want to be in here. I yeah. want to be in choir while my brother and sister were. So it was completely arbitrary. And I remember singing on the first day. Now that I've taught and I've taught public school. And I remember first day I taught middle school boys. And I have a, a different respect for my, my teacher because I was in seventh grade boys choir. And they were, we just weren't very well disciplined. I, of course, was, was an angel, of yeah, course. Yeah. Uh, uh, but in now, all seriousness, now I, wait I, a minute, Chris. Wait, wait a minute, because I've heard other interviews that you've done where you have not, uh, not claimed to be an angel uh, in school. So don't, don't try choir, to But in choir, <laughs> I, I wanted to be there. So I was, I was the kid. If you, if you ever taught, I was a kid who wanted so bad. So I was, everything you told me, I would sit down and, and get, I happened like on the second or third day of school, she was doing vocalizations and trying to place us. And I remember she heard me and she was like, have you ever sung before? And I was like, no. And she was like, well, come see me after school. And she, we, we went and talked after school. 
I remember Miss Gina Boswell at Euless Junior High. And she said, hey, I want you to try out for auditions. I didn't know what that was. She <laughs> said it cost like five or $10. And I remember immediately being turned off because I was like, I don't want to ask my parents or I don't ask my mom for any money because I know my brother just got shoes for football and cleats for football. My sister's running track. And so I was like, I don't want to do it. So eventually I did do it. And I ended up getting, again, quite arbitrarily, first chair and a tenor two, didn't know what was going on. But literally, that was the first time that I had done anything formal. And, and the rest of that class throughout the school year consisted of us being, uh, we were in trouble all the time. So we, we had to write definitions from the book the whole time, like during choir. And then after school, I would go and learn the audition music and all that stuff. Yeah. Uh, well, I, it, it seems pretty clear uh, that you enjoyed early experiences in choir because obviously you kept going you got more involved you were doing honor choirs and stuff like that throughout high school um and and obviously you're, you're teaching music and writing music now so uh, something about a hit for you but uh i know oh, you yeah. mentioned and I've, I've heard you mentioned before uh that you played sports did you play through high school did you play sports definitely so i mean what what did you play basketball was my sport of choice yeah. I also ran some track though, and I played a little bit of baseball, not for my school, but I played like for uh, like club baseball. And basketball, what position? Point guard, all now, day, every day. Chris, Chris, be honest with me. Were you any good? And I and uh, now now wait, I don't 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 tell me, uh, like you know, like you're reliving glory days now as an as an older guy looking back and say, you know, I was good because nobody can fact check this. Be honest with me. Were you any good? Yeah. <laughs> yeah? Yeah. I, even today, like, it, it's strange because this last year, two or three of my men in choir were also athletes, and they did, they, we found out that, that professors can also play on, like, our intramural sports teams. Okay. So they asked me to play basketball, and I was like, I'll play. I think they thought I wasn't going to play, and so I went out, and we hooped. Uh, we, we played basketball, and we were pretty, pretty good. Um, I mean, I'm also uber competitive. Like it's almost to a fault. Like it's yeah. almost a flaw of mine, but it comes from, from playing sports and it comes from being like an undersized person playing a game that, that caters to like height. I'm yeah. six feet tall, five eleven and a half. We're going to say six feet today. Um, <laughs> and I've always been undersized. So I've always had to, have to, had to fight for things that I, that I got, which I feel almost, I feel very similarly in music as well. Yeah. Uh, so, uh, how did, um, how did the balance go between, I mean, was there, as you were approaching the end of high school, was there any thought to not pursuing music because you wanted to pursue something else? Were you thinking, I mean, was, was college sports an option for you at some level or, or where did, where did music sort of start to become the thing and not just one of the things? Yeah. I remember my high school choir director went and talked to my basketball coach. And I remember I got called into a meeting with my basketball coach and I didn't think anything of it. And he didn't tell me what it was about. He just said, Hey, come to the, the office. And I walked in and he was in there with my choir director. And I was mm. like, Oh, <laughs> that's and at two, that time, two different worlds, man. And I, I'm like, I keep them separated. Even today as a grown up, <laughs> I keep them separated. And I remember them having a conversation and I remember him asking her like, okay, kind of what you said, like, is he any good? Like, can you do without him? And she was mm -hmm. like, no. 
It's like, no, absolutely not. Mm -hmm. And then she asked the same thing and he was like, no. And then there was a turning point. And I remember just sitting there looking <laughs> just back and <laughs> forth and like being yeah. completely terrified. And there's a turning point in the conversation. And I use this when I speak to a lot of my, my young athletes, men specifically, where he said, after they talked for like 20 minutes, he said, I don't see, he said, Chris, you're a great athlete. He said, I don't see all state talent in you. And she says, she sees great all state talent in you, all state level talent. And if you had to choose, I think you should lean more with music. And then I cried, mm. bawled like a little baby. Yeah. Um, and, and left college still trying to play sport. I'm sorry, left high school still trying and wanting to play sports in college. But then I, I kept getting all these opportunities musically. And yeah. I ended up going to like a, a vocal camp at the place I ended up going to my undergrad at Texas Southern University. And I met Dr. Jason Obi, who was leading that camp. He was just amazing. And I wasn't 100% sure I was going to do music in college, but things just kind of happened that kind of just kept me in music and kind of ensured that that's what I was going to do. Yeah. Well, it's nice to hear um, you talk passionately about sports. You know, one of the things uh, that sometimes really frustrates me about music teachers that I, I see this online sometimes is um, I think uh, part of it comes from, you know, there are a lot of music teachers that are in districts, maybe uh, where the teachers were not as supportive as, as the music teacher and coach that you had, where they, you know, they, they were working together where sports is perceived perhaps to have more value than music among students, among community, among people with money, whatever. And uh, so sometimes um, music people feel slighted by that, right? And uh, I think they feel like some people in sports are disparaging towards music. And so then what I see, and tell, I, maybe you've seen this before, is I'll see music people on you know Facebook or something, and they'll make some comments about um, yeah. like sport ball and like, you know, kind of being disparaging about sports, like as if they don't matter, right? Like that right. all people are going crazy about the Super Bowl and oh, I don't care who cares about this. And I just think like, folks, don't you understand? Like you not liking it doesn't make it bad. And there's value in that too. And let's not like, just because it's not our thing, let's not disparage that because that does people like you a disservice, right? People who are super mm -hmm. into sports. I was not the most gifted athlete, but I was a big sports fan, right? I, and it still am. I love, I love sports. Uh, and if a, a music teacher had been purposefully disparaging about sports to me and preaching the value of music over sports, that would have really turned me off, right? I, I just don't understand why people do that. Yeah. I, I echo your sentiments exactly. And, and being yeah. a person who, who, who very literally lived in both worlds and there's like there's, you know, ridiculous stereotypes about the other. And, and it comes from a place of, of not understanding and a lack of understanding for the value and the intrinsic value benefit of, of the other. But it's, it's a little bit of, it's a little bit frustrating. Yeah. Um, so, yeah. Director and uh, basketball coach didn't feel that way. Although the first round of the Texas All-State competition uh, always was the same weekend as our first tournament. And I always went to the Texas All-State. Yeah, there you go. That, yeah. There you so. go. Well, good. Um, 
what uh when did you um i know because i again i've i've uh read a little bit and, and listened to some other stuff that you've talked about so i know that you were writing music of some kind pretty early on uh and kind of it that it was maybe always a thing that you were doing uh, a little bit of composing or, or writing of music um when did uh you decide that music broadly speaking was going to be a career or at least a, a path of study for you um and when did you start to think about composition in not just a um writing for yourself kind of way or writing out of need kind of way because i i, I know that early early in your career um, you were writing music maybe for for your choirs that you directed, right? Out of necessity, you said, "I I I need music mm -hmm. to fit this this group," and so you wrote for them. So uh, those are maybe two big questions, but I'll, I'll repeat them because I, I I want answers to both. When did you decide that that broadly speaking, music was going to be a career path for you? And then within that, um, when did composition be become something that you decided was not just uh, utility? Um, but was something you were going to okay. do to kind of share. Okay, I'm going to start the first question. To, I'm going to answer that one and then bring reel me back in so I can answer the second. Yeah, uh, got it. Um, I, I would say it was sometime in my undergrad. Like I was good at just, okay, so let me say this. I, I was an excellent musician. I've always been stellar musician. And I say that to say I was I was rarely I still don't classify myself as a good singer, um, mm. which if you ask my students, they'll get mad at me. But especially growing up, I was not a good singer. You know, one of the things I tell people all the time, you know, I, I tried out for the Texas Allstate Choir four years in a row and never made it past like the third or fourth round, which doesn't mean a whole lot, if, especially if you know what I, that process in Texas. But I never made it. I wasn't I didn't have golden vocal cords, as some people mm -hmm. do. I, I never had the voice, although I was, I think my greatest gift, if there was one, is that I understand music much easier and quicker than most people. Mm -hmm. So I was a great musician and very innately musical. And the reason I say that is because there wasn't a clear, like, you're going to do performance or you're going to do composition or you're going to do anything when I was going into school and then even through school. I know I had somewhat of a passion to teach. So eventually, that's just kind of what I ended up doing. If you had all of my undergrad professors here on a panel, you know, half of them would say, you know, we thought he was going to do performance. I remember I auditioned for the Arcan for the Arizona State University music program, and I got in as a, a performance major in for grad school. But I, that wasn't like my number one passion. Mm -hmm. And then I remember I I, I, I dabbled in composition. Um, but it wasn't that I wanted to, to pursue that, to pursue degrees in composition. So I think somewhere, no, I don't know, junior, senior year of undergrad. And I was like, okay, well, I'm going to teach. I'm going to graduate here in a little bit. Like mm -hmm. time is running down. Like I need to have a, a job. And I did have a passion for it. I sucked at it my first two years. Always. I was did, royally terrible. Yeah. Yeah. Royally terrible. Um, and then I kind of figured out ish my third year and my fourth year was like, okay, cool. Um, and then it was, you know, I, I was better after that. Uh, classroom <laughs> management was always atrocious, but I could make my choir sound good. Um, yeah. <laughs> so, you know, short answer, somewhere in, in undergrad, 
Yeah. Um, and even then, I wasn't even sure because when, when I graduated and actually began teaching as a, uh, as a choir director, I was also coaching. I was also mm. working at my church. I was working as a musician and a worship leader and things like that. Um, and I could have easily gone one way or another at that time in my, in my brain. And it wasn't actually, it really wasn't until, until Dr. Janet Galvan at Ithaca College, I was doing a composition competition and long story short, after I submitted several works, she came to me and she said, uh, in, in no uncertain language, you need to get up, leave and go and get your master's degree. And, and I never looked back. And she said some other things, which, you know, I'm not going to say at this exact moment, but she was basically saying just, hey, take the next step. And it was, it was, even at that point, I was still quite uncertain, um, which is interesting, but I was quite uncertain. So uh, it was, it's kind of been a process, but mm. it, it kind of started at the end of my undergraduate career. Um, yeah. So, and, yeah, so uh, I think, I think, boy, I, I want to ask you about 27 more questions uh, with things that you just said, but I think that that's, um, that'll, that happens for a lot of people that when we enter uh, music majors enter undergrad, I think that a lot of people perceive that there are um, only a couple of different ways to be a professional musician, right? When you're 18, you think, well, I can go into performance and that might not work out. <laughs> mm-hmm. Or I can go into music education. Probably won't work out. <laughs> and for different reasons. Um, but th- there's, I'm more likely to have a job and then and people end up kind of just picking between those when reality is there's a, a gazillion ways to be a working musician. Right. Um, but I, I don't think it's uncommon for people to still be figuring it out even after they've become a music teacher. Right. Um, so uh, I know you mentioned a composition in there a couple of times. Uh, uh, I'm, I would guess that if people ask you now, um, you know, you meet somebody for the first time and they say, Oh, Chris, nice to meet you. What do you do that you don't say I'm a composer? Is that true? Correct. Correct. I'm guessing you say I'm a, I'm a choir director or I'm a professor that, you know, that's it. But, um, but clearly uh, given some of the work you're doing, or if some one were to go to your website, composition has become a much bigger part of the thing that you do. Um, so when did that start to happen that, that you became, you know, kind of entered this space of composition in a way that it was, um, meant to be shared with other people, uh, not just people in front of you. Right. So it's interesting earlier, you said that I compose out of need, which is, is true. When I was teaching middle school, I compose things for my students. Um, and even now that I'm teaching college, I can post things for them, uh, at the college level. You know, Janet Galvan, again, told me she, when I was going through my master's and doctoral degree, she said, Chris, the interesting thing about you is you compose because you have to. Mm. Um, and I remember as, as she unpacked that statement, you know, she was saying, you know, you just can't help but, but compose. It's not that you're doing it for, uh, for money or for, for financial gain, which, of course, if that happens, <laughs> you're not mad. We'll, we'll, yeah, right. Thank you. We'll take it. <laughs> yeah. Um, but it was true. Um, I would just compose because I had like this, this 
this stubborn muse in my head that would just not let me not compose. If, I, if, I, if there was a poem that I stumbled across that was, was beautiful and profound enough, or if there was a Bible verse that, was, that moved me such, that I'm gonna set it to music. Um, and a lot of times uh, people, are, people are kind of shocked sometimes when they see my catalog. I'm like, yeah, I have like you know, 30, 40 pieces. And it's just because I was just composing for the sake of composing. Um, and then I look up and like, oh, I got all these works. Um, so, so let me answer your question more directly. I remember from conversations with, with Janet Galvan, also with Lawrence Dobler, who was at Ithaca as a DCA, um, or at least up through my first year of my master's, then he retired. And then also having conversations, um, with Kevin Fitton at Florida state and with Andre Thomas at Florida state. Um, I, I never felt like a composer, well, let me say this. I never felt like other people saw what I had to offer as a composer mm. um, until Andre Thomas published one of my pieces, mm -hmm. which, which interestingly enough, I had submitted that exact piece to five or six other publishing companies. And of course it was turned down. Then it's published through, through him and it sells you know, thousands and thousands of, of copies. That's, that piece, by the way, is I Am Loved. Um, mm -hmm. And it's at that time, I, I've always been who I am. I've been, you know, I think I wrote I Am Loved in like 2007 or 2008, and which was, you know, a solid decade before it was published. But so I've always been writing. I've always been doing, yeah. doing what I do. And it wasn't kind of until maybe like, so at that point, that was like six or seven years ago. Wow. That's a, I got to think about that. It's like six or seven years ago. And that's kind of when I was like, you know, I can potentially make, a, a separate part of my professional musical career um, composing. Um, I don't know if that answers your question. It does. I hope it does. Yes. Makes sense to me. Uh, I want to take a little departure here. I'm going to fill up my glass, uh, but we're going to play uh, a little game. Uh, and okay. the game is, uh, is called fire, not fire. And oh, no. uh, yeah. So here's how this goes. I'm going to give you 10 things. And you're going to tell me if those things are fire or not fire. Um, oh, okay, and it's, let's go. it's designed to be a little bit rapid, uh, you know, kind of quick hitting. But if, if you've got more to say on a topic, go for it. Does that make sense? All right. Yeah, okay. I, think I'm, I think I got it. All right. This is Fire Not Fire presented by Four Fires Meadery with Chris Harris. Uh, number one, traveling. Fire. Uh, anywhere in particular you have favorite destinations? uh oh anyway <laughs> like i i love my job love my job again love my job yeah but it keeps me so busy that anytime i can get away from russellville arkansas is great um, i'm a little i'm get as i get older I, I respect and have a greater appreciation for being around my family so anywhere i can travel with my family or to be with them is, is great good i like it uh number two texas in the summer what okay so i'll say not fire because number one <laughs> that weather is trash like ain't nobody got time for that it's too hot too yeah. sweaty but i will also say um i mean i'm from texas like that's my that's yeah. my that, that's who i am and you know my summers were spent in the heat playing basketball yeah. running around playing football with my shirt off with my siblings and all that kind of stuff so i've kind of grown accustomed to it but you know now that I'm in my 30s, like, no, not fire. No. Not fire. <laughs> yeah. All right. Uh, number three, late nights. Oh, fire. 
Right. Are you a night person? Yeah, I am. Not a morning person at yeah. all. Well, 100% you've, night. You've given away uh, number four, early mornings. Oh, trash. Throw it away. <laughs> not fire. No. Now, ha- has that changed at all as you've as you've gotten older? Are you do you have you developed any uh, like for the morning, or are you still like you're a night person? You know, I, I, uh, you know, it. I actually has changed. Uh, in addition to having to sometimes teach eight eight a.m. classes, which for any professors, well, for any teachers really, but you you can't just wake up at seven thirty and then teach your eight o'clock class. Right. You have to get up early. You got to do a lot of planning. So. And, and here recently in like the past year, I've just been like waking up at 4 a.m., 5 a.m. for no reason. And I'm wide awake. And sometimes I can go back to sleep. But, you know, I've learned to try to utilize that time. Sometimes I'll go to the gym. Sometimes I'll just get up and, and get yeah. my day started. I yeah, don't like I it. T- I, don't no, like I, it. I, I don't either. And I tell you, I've got an 18 month old at home. And uh, so early mornings are the only mornings. Uh, and right. uh, boy, I uh, I miss late nights. Uh, all right. Uh, number Congratulations. five. Congratulations. Congratulations. Oh, yeah. Thanks. Thanks. Uh, number five, fast food. Fire. What? If you don't <laughs> like fast food, we cannot be friends. <laughs> what is, uh, what, what's, what's, what are the go-tos? What are the favorites? Okay. Favorite. It's not here in Arkansas, except for like, there's one, like, I think kind of in, on the South side and there's one in, in Northwest Arkansas, I think at least one. But I'm right in central Arkansas in Russellville, and we need this. What a burger. We don't have it. Mm. I love it. Um, in town, I mean, I, you, for the longest time, I didn't really do McDonald's, but I mean, I find myself going to McDonald's like two or three times a week. Taco Bell, you know, why not? Yeah. Some uh, upset stomach, why not? Okay, it's fine. <laughs> uh, I hear you. I hear really, you. Any, anything, anything yeah. that's, that's quick. I'm, all right, I'm good. All uh, number six, hip hop. A fire what absolutely uh, okay uh, well now we're going a different direction uh number seven country music fire really well well i mean absolutely a lot of people are it's not hip-hop and country right it, it sometimes is one or the other is it because you're a texas boy that you like country music or is it something you've grown to appreciate later or tell me tell me about this country music chris yeah so so i don't think that any genre of music um is you know less than another i think the same pitches and rhythms and harmonic contour and and can you still hear me mm-hmm. yeah the same pitches and rhythms and harmonic contour and time signature is what makes music music and I think that it's just how we use those. And I think it's just like a, a taste level thing. I honestly think it's more just what we are familiar with, you know, uh, mm-hmm. and what we know more about. And then again, we see this everywhere in life. The thing that we're unfamiliar with, oftentimes you have negative feelings about, negative thoughts about. And yeah. I think that that's a more, more it than anything. But I think there's some amazing, uh, amazing um, hip hop artists and some amazing country singers. Absolutely. Now- let, let me press you a little bit. I'm, this is the, the tough question. I'll put you on the spot. Give me a country artist or a country song that, you're, that you like, that you're into. Uh, uh, what it's called. That's what you get when you play the country song backwards. I love it. Rascal Flatts. I mean, I, uh, wouldn't, I, wouldn't, I wouldn't say Rascal Flatts is like country. Like, yeah, sure. I don't know that they're like 100% country, but I do love that song. Um, 
Yeah, there's uh, there's a lot of Tim McGraw stuff that I love too. Tim McGraw, he has some fire stuff. All right, there um, you go. Yeah. Uh, number eight, sushi. Oh, fire! If you don't like sushi, okay. don't talk to me. We can't be friends. Mm-mm. I mean, look, Chris, you're you're going both sides of the spectrum here. We got hip hop, we got country, we got fast food, we got sushi, we got um, it's you everything. All right. Uh, number nine, uh, I I kind of know the answer. I think uh, to this, but watching sports, fire. D- depending uh, on the sport. Now, are you? Um, I assume you like watching basketball. Yes. Uh, are you more of a, a college game kind of guy or the NBA? Oh, you know, I'm I'm more of a good basketball. Yeah. Um, I like I like both. Um, I, I, honestly, now that I think about it, I think college is probably more um and entertaining well maybe there's a different adjective than entertaining but i, I don't know like the, the 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 professional nba like it's so dominated in at times by how tall how how tall you are how high you can jump and how many times you can dunk and and how many times you can jack up threes yeah. and for anyone who's a, actually a student of the game and who's, who's played the sport you know, you're, we're not as impressed by that. You know, most people that are impressed by that aren't athletes, aren't basketball players. Um, yeah. Actual basketball players aren't impressed with, let's just dunk every every time. We're impressed with, you know, good ball control, court vision, um, you know, running an offense, you know, all those kind of things. So, yeah. Yeah. Good. I'm going to have basketball college. Follow- I'm going to have basketball follow ups maybe when we're done recording. We not not okay. everybody needs to hear us chat about ball for a while. Uh, all right. Uh, last one, number ten. Uh, binging television. One hundred percent fire. Like one. If you're not, if you can't. Okay, <laughs> I understand for health reasons, maybe you can't eat all yeah. the fast food. So getting past that, if you're not like having a pizza and at eleven p.m., twelve midnight, one a.m., binging something at some part in your life, some point in your life, like what you're are you missing doing? out? Like, come yeah. on. You got to do that stuff at some point. You, you're missing out on some part of the human experience. I couldn't agree more, my friend. All right. Thank you. That was Fire Not Fire with Chris Harris. All right. Yeah. Cheers to that. <laughs> okay, friends. I want to take a minute to tell you about the sponsor for today's episode, Four Fires Meadery. First, Meadery in Toledo, they are making some absolutely incredible stuff. And the good news is that even if you can't drop in for a few glasses, you can have the mead shipped directly to your door. I am not sure I can imagine a more exciting package to open. Right now on their website, you can order things like Mangos, a mango pineapple honey wine with ghost peppers added. The ghost peppers might sound kind of intense, but the sweet and heat are amazingly well balanced. Or maybe a bottle of Little Pink Lawn Chair. This is their strawberry, raspberry, and lemon mead to give you a taste of pink lemonade in the summer year-round. I had a glass of this on their patio a couple of weeks ago, and, well, it's the perfect summer beverage. If you want to try some, visit them on the web at 4fmeadery.com and order a bottle today. They're shipping nationwide, and you don't want to miss out. Again, that is the number 4fmeadery.com to order your bottle today. I also hope you will show them some support on social media at Four Fires Meadery on Instagram. It's a great follow. Buy some mead, you won't regret it. And now, back to the conversation. Uh, so, 
I do. I want to talk about uh, some of your music and some some specific yeah. music. Um, you know, I sometimes I get lost uh, talking to people about their life and about what they're into because I get really excited about that. But I know people want to know um, about some of your pieces. Uh, and so I, I want to talk about some of that. So okay. uh, I want to first ask you about um, a piece so wondrous, sweet and fair. Uh, and, and I love it. It's beautiful. It's a beautiful piece of music. Um, Thank you. So, yeah. Uh, so I'm wondering if you can tell us um, just a little bit about where the piece came from, the genesis of the piece, how, how it came to be. Yeah. So, so number one, in all seriousness, thank you. This is, if someone, I, I get the question, I'm like, what's your most underrated piece or what piece mm -hmm. do you wish you got more buzz? It would be, this would be on that list. Um, and it's set to the text of Go Lovely Rose. And I've loved that poem. I've loved it. I, you know, I remember singing the Roger Quilter setting of it when I was in college. And I remember falling madly in love with the first choral arrangement that I heard, which was done by Eric Whitaker. Um, sorry, choral composition, not arrangement, by Eric Whitaker. And I remember just loving the poem. And I remember when I, you know, for like over a decade, I would read this poem and I would get something different from it, you know, you know, go comma or go um, exclamation mark, like go lovely rose. Like, okay, what is this poem really about? It's always set in a, a soft lyrical manner. Like, I don't know if that's the nature of the poem. I'm not saying it's not, but for my um, interpretation, it's not just soft legato the whole time. So mm -hmm. my point is I was, I, I was always like turned on by this poem. And I wanted to set it, but I knew that it had been set dozens of times. And, you know, as a, a young composer, you're like, okay, we're, you know, we're kind of told, maybe stay away from some of those, those overly set poems because it may not get published. Uh, but I remember saying, okay, I got to write this. And I finally had the musical inclination around like, I don't know, two, 2009, eight or nine or something like that. And I just wrote it. I wrote it. Um, things uh two things actually that that i noticed uh i think maybe even first when i was listening to this piece and then started to see it uh, recurring in a lot of your music and so when i ask you if these are things that are important to you and, and purposeful or if it, it just kind of happens in the way that you write um but in go lovely rose you there are a lot of key changes right you said adventurous harmonically but it's not just 
you know, that you're popping a, a different chord in here and there, you move through different key centers. Um, right. And I, I've noticed that you, you do that quite a bit in, in your music. Um, you also have um, very long vocal lines, right? So I, I think just from a breath perspective, when you're talking about um, challenges of the piece, um, I think that some of these long lines are, are part of that. There's spots where you've got kind of a no breath mark to where I'm like, Chris, I, I need, I need right. a breath here, man. I, I could use you that. You need oxygen. Um, oh yeah, 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 of course. Yeah. So, so tell me a little bit about that. Is there something about these kind of long connected lines that, that um, you're, you're drawn to? And also uh, this kind of moving uh, between different keys uh, in, in one piece. Yeah. Uh, so the the second part of that, the, the moving between different keys, I, I am drawn to that. I am very, um, um, I, I do have things that are almost one well that are one hundred percent diatonic, um, but I do think that there's something to be said about how we handle all all twelve notes of of the chromatic scale. Um, I like to I like to think that when I do have these these changes, they're done, uh, what's the word? Uh, like kaleidoscopically almost. Like it's like it's a little, then it's different mm -hmm. color. Like there's a one pitch that's added. I, I get that specifically from, um, well, the, the birth of this particular idea comes from Morton Lauritsen when he sets Omani Mysterium and it's all diatonic and it's one of the most amazing, you know, epic pieces in my opinion for the choral canon. And he has just one, uh, non-diatonic note, you know, it's in key of D. And when he says Virgo, he has a G sharp. And it's just the most like, I, if you don't know the piece, especially if you can hear it with fresh ears, just like, wow, that came out of nowhere, but it mm -hmm. adds such beauty and color. That kind of idea, I try to have one note or maybe two notes that completely change the tonality and we're on to a different tonality and then a different two notes and then we're on to a different tonality. And try, I try to weave it back together. I do like that. Um, I don't think I do it like as a conscious thing. I just think it's yeah. such a part of my harmonic language that it's gonna happen. I also get get annoyed with the same key too much. <laughs> yeah. Uh, like, wait, you know, how can how can I in, in really expound and elaborate musically on on a poem or a text if if I'm completely governed by seven notes of a scale? Sure. Um, you know that I'm oversimplifying. Don't yeah, get me yeah. wrong, but but I just like to to, to use more color, um, which of course means harmonic. Yeah. Um, adventure. So, uh, in in uh, this piece, I love um, it's it's in measure sixty four. The first time you sing the word fair, uh, because as you're listening, when you get to that that word fair you like as a listener you're like it's gonna set this is it like it's just gonna go and settle and it doesn't right it, it, it like, doesn't yeah it just moves in a different direction and then and then you think after that you're like oh okay he's setting us up for this like at the end but even the last chord of that piece is a little bit deceptive right so it i, I just i love that ending because it it, it is um it's unexpected Sweet, so sweet. 
I want to talk about uh, one kind of one piece, but it's a it's a part of a broader set of pieces. Uh, and so I, I want to ask you about uh, I would live in your love, and um, I would live in your love is uh, text by Sarah Teasdale, and uh, as it turns out, you've got what ultimately is I think a set of five. Yeah, uh, it's actually poems. six. It's going to be six. The, the sixth one it's is going to be six. Composed. Well, the, the fourth of what will be six is currently being composed. I understand. So uh, I want to ask you, before we talk specifically about I Would Live in Your Love, what um, initially drew you to uh, the poetry of Sarah Teasdale um, and what continues to draw you to her poetry. And I ask that partly because not unlike Go Lovely Rose, uh, Sarah Teasdale does get set by core musicians or you know composers quite often. Um, and so I, I wonder, uh, I, I understand how somebody might initially be drawn to her because I think we're, as you've, said before we're drawn to things we're familiar with right uh mm -hmm. and if you've sung her poetry at some point as a, a choral singer which everyone has uh, i can see how you might be initially drawn to it so I, I don't know if there was something that initially brought you to it but i'm maybe more curious about what keeps bringing you back to her poetry yeah uh so i one of the things uh that so as a choral musician um you know i, I try to be aware of like write something accessible you know everything can't be 10 minutes long but everything can't be 30 seconds long so i try you know oftentimes beautiful poems are just so long and mm -hmm. you know if i'm going to set that in a crawl fashion that's going to be you know several several minutes um the connection here is that oftentimes sarah Tiso has short poetry but in my opinion it is simple but almost always amazingly profound and relatable. Mm. And she is a person who doesn't just write flowery, familiar, oh, love is wonderful and I feel so great when I'm loved. Uh, don't, don't get me wrong, she has those things out there, but you know, she had a hard time in this whole love game. She had a hard time, you know, and, and, and she writes from some of that heartbreak that she experiences. And I think that that's one of the things that, especially if you're an adult, you can relate to that if you, with the way that she sets her poems, the words that she uses, and that's something that I respect so much. I mean, there's such depth in some of the most simple words. That's, I think, initially what drew me to, drew me to her poetry. So uh, in, in this piece, and I, I would live in your love, right at the very beginning, we hear the first, we hear, I would live. And this, it's it's one of those chords that, especially like for a TTBB uh, choir, there's nothing particularly special about the chord in its vertical construction, but it just, it goes, whoo, you know what I mean? It just like, it settles. Yeah. It's one of those things that if you're a singer and you're sight reading that, when you hit that chord, you go, this is, this is gonna feel good. This is gonna feel yeah. good to sing, you know what I mean?
how much of your approach to writing music is born out of your experience as a singer. I, you know, how, how much do you think about the voice and how it feels to sing while you're writing that music? Every note, every note. I can't, I, it, it, this is one of, it's like the bane of my existence now as, not a bane, I shouldn't say that, but you know, sometimes I see works by young composers um, or not even young composers, but it's been composing like this, this, this doesn't sit well in the voice. Like this vowel is terrible. The range is not realistic, all these things. And my point is that that's a part of me. I'm a singer before I'm anything. So I, I try to think about all those things. I also try to think about what are things that singers enjoy? What are harmonies that singers enjoy? What are sounds? I talk a lot about sounds of the language. Live in your love as, the, you know, all these things that are, that are, are so fulfilling to sing as a singer. I try to factor in all those things as I'm writing. In fact, it can be quite annoying sometimes because sometimes I can't find a solution to the thing that I want to do because it puts, it makes the singer do something that is not good, not natural or unhealthy or too far out of their range or all the things that, mm. you know, as choir directors, we know, I probably don't want to ask my sopranos to sing a high D for, you know, 10 measures in a row. Yeah. Uh, so, you know, I, not that I write that. I don't, I don't write that. Yeah, right. But, you know. <laughs> Well, I, I again, you, this is this is one, and despite it still being a challenging piece, right? I I I don't want to say that it's a, a simple uh, piece by any means, but you you know early that you're going to enjoy the work that it takes to put into it. Like you just know right off the bat, it, it it's going to feel good. Um, and uh, so uh, you may you may have touched on this, and I didn't, I maybe didn't quite get it. Did you plan for there to be a set of Sarah Teasdale music initially, or was it one poem that you wrote uh, a piece uh, to and then kind of kept going after that? Or, you know, what was what was the plan for it? Yeah, uh, you know, I don't know. I think that, I know it's, it's all kind of like an amoeba, kind of, mm -hmm. kind of an ever-evolving thing. Like when I set out to write the first note of the first piece, whatever it was, I didn't know this is going to be five pieces necessarily. I didn't know that maybe there were going to be several. Yeah. I did know that one of my favorite works at the time was the Chanson uh, de Roses by yeah. uh, Lauritsen. And I know I kind of wanted to kind of use that as a general inspiration. I knew I wanted to have um, like a, a choral song cycle. And at the time, I didn't know that I had all of the poems, but I, I just started writing as the inspiration was hitting me. And then I looked up over a couple of weeks and all of a sudden there was a process about about love. I think that I would living in love actually came early in the, the writing process. Yeah. Um yeah. And like this 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 other piece, the reason it's not being added to the end is because you know I talked about the this the, the cycle and process of 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 two lovers in love uh being what the cycle is about. And this particular poem that I'm now setting, which I just couldn't not set. It's just beautiful and spoke so specifically to what I'm experiencing right now. When I first started writing Poems of Sarah Teasdale, which I would live in your love is from, it was back in like the late 20, well, like between 2007 and 2010. And I was in love and I was hearkening back and trying to write musically what I was feeling. And so now that I'm experiencing that now, this particular work 
is being inserted and it more, most appropriately goes like around four in the set of six. Cool. Uh, I want to, just because you you mentioned it, it made me think of this. Uh, I want to give a shout out actually for anybody who maybe doesn't really know this set of lords and pieces that you mentioned. Um, fellow podcaster and friend of the show, Josh Shank has a, a podcast called Have You Heard This? And on a recent episode, um, he talks about Contra Key Rose. Oh, uh, thank and, and you, Josh. Of, kind of in depth. And so, uh, and I, I'm guessing Josh is going to listen to this episode because he, he often texts me after episodes and I so appreciate his uh, listenership. But uh, if you want another podcast to listen to, go to listen to Josh's podcast. Have you heard this? And they, they talk about that Lord's and said a little bit on that piece specifically. So it's, it's great. And it's a good way to uh, get to know the piece. So, right. That's such a good set. I think Contra Quiroz and La Rose Complet are, in my opinion, underrated. I yeah. think they're so great. Vidaton, it's awesome, beautiful, wonderful, accessible, sings well. Yes, we get it. Yes, There's more to that <laughs> set. And I love those two. Those two. I, I think you're right. We get it. We get it. Uh, okay. Now, I want to talk to you about one more piece uh, specifically. Um, and uh, I know uh, that you've talked about this piece you've interviewed about this piece before in fact i'll tell you and if anybody wants to they should go and listen i think it was last summer you were featured on a i guess a video podcast of a video interview with contus um and they performed a few of your pieces and they you you, you talked a little bit about uh, each of them and so i'd encourage people to go go listen to that if they uh, i think if they search probably chris harris contus they'll they'll find it or yeah. chris harris Contus podcast. I don't remember what I searched to find it, but I, I was listening to it. Um, and uh, uh, so I, I've heard you talk a little bit about this piece, but I wonder um, if you can tell us uh, about uh, My Way Home. Um, and uh, I'll tell people um, before you give us any sort of detail that um, it's your poetry uh, and, and, and your text. And, and I I'm particularly interested because we talked about this with um, Matt Hazard uh, last episode about him getting to a place where writing his own poetry and setting it to music became possible and why he did it and how, how it came to him. Um, so I uh, want to know a little bit about what motivated you to write this poem and to set it to music and what, what made you feel comfortable doing that um, and kind of what, what the genesis is of the piece. Yeah. Man, they're so, I love all my compositions, um, but some of them, I think the circumstances just make them that more unique and that much more special. And this is one of those. I, I, I wrote it in during my master's degree when I was at Ithaca College. And I was approached by a men's group. They were called Ithaca Capella. They were like rock stars on the campus. They were like a- Very familiar. Are you familiar yeah. with them? Yeah. yeah. They're a group of 16, or at the time there were 16 of them, many of them being voice majors. They sung, they had choreography. They had like a whole show, smoke, uh, you know, staging, lighting. Like we would go to their concerts and there would be hundreds of people. Yeah. I'm not <laughs> hundreds of people like in the line waiting 45 minutes before the concert. I'm like, like, can we get this for the choir concerts too? But yeah, yeah, yeah. So I, I knew, I knew many, many of these guys from just being uh, a graduate student and a graduate TA and teaching many of them. And I saw a different side of them in choir than, you know, what I saw oftentimes when they were in the capella. And 
you know, so they approached me and said, hey, can you write something for us? And I said, I, I knew immediately that I want to, to show off a different side of them that wasn't, you know, a, a pop song arranged in an acapella fashion and with all the cool things. So I didn't have any, any musical tools at the time. I just knew what I wanted to do and what I wanted to say. I'm a person who I try, I, I want as much as, as possible for, I think art and life should be a, a mirror to each other. I think that they should, should, should comment on each other. I think that if we're not doing that, then what are we doing? Um, so at the time, one of the things that I just drew very real um, and genuine inspiration from was this horrible tragedy that was, even at the time, I just couldn't believe the circumstances of the tragedy. And what I'm referencing is the, the shooting at Sandy Hook Elementary. Um, and so fast forward, I wanted to pull from, from very genuine um, feelings and thoughts that I was having. So I, 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 I ended up finding this event as inspiration and I couldn't find words that captured fully, that captured in any capacity some element of this particular event. So what I ended up arriving on, and this is actually a connection to my mom, was, you know, I have to imagine, because I was not a like a, a, a well-behaved kid when I was yeah. like seven, eight, nine. I got in trouble a lot. I think it's because I suffered with undiagnosed ADD or ADHD. Yeah, sure. You know, I, I would get like hundreds on everything. Like I would get straight A and get horrible conduct marks and be talking all the time and hyper all that stuff. So. I was like imagining like there was many mornings that you know the last things my mom said to me were probably frustration filled, anger filled, or like something, or maybe I even got a spanking on the way to school or something. I don't know. And we don't call them spankings; we would call them whoopings in the black yeah. community. But <laughs> yeah. uh, you know, maybe that was the last thing she said to me. So I'm putting myself on the mind of this six, seven year old who maybe the last thing they that they experienced, the last moment that this mom or dad had with the six, seven year old, maybe was full of frustration, perhaps, or maybe they were sick or something, I don't know. And, you know, if you know, the next phone call they get is from the school, the school principal or from the police department, you know, your seven year old, there's been, there, there's, there's been an occurrence, can you come to the school and you find out that the, the last seconds of this child's life were full of fear, um, un unquenchable fear, and then five bullets, ripping through their seven-year-old body. And so I didn't want to just leave it at the place of, of tragedy. I wanted to say, okay, well, what, is there a way we can honor or bring hope or bring some sort of memorial? Um, and I knew that was one of my intentions. So I said all that to say this next thing. I said, you know, if I'm this six, seven-year-old and I'm, you know, in heaven, and if, if, as an example, if God says, hey, you have one opportunity and one opportunity alone to speak directly to your mother's heart. Uh, she's grieving, she's torn. There's nothing that, that she can do that will ever give her solace, ever. What would you say? What words would you say? And that's where the words for this particular uh, song were birthed. And I tried to make them as, as indicative of what I truly felt, but also as, as um, simple, you know, I don't want to use, I have a PhD and I have a respect for, for words and for language and for 
all that stuff. But I, I wanted to make, I didn't want to use three, four or five syllable words. I just wanted to use everyday words we can relate to, which is where the text came for this work. And then mm. I actually wrote it in like, mm, like 30 minutes. I mean, I, the mm. notation of it took longer, but I actually wrote the piece in 30 minutes. And it was one of the, the hardest 30 minutes of my life. Like it was, I, I tried to put my, I, I read an interview with Eric Whitaker when he was talking about when he wrote when David heard uh, and he had, had to put himself in the place of losing his son. And that's what I did for a little bit. I, I tried to allow myself to go to a place where, where I had lost my child or where I had to witness the, this is, this is the it for me. I had to witness the pain of mm -hmm. my mother upon learning that I was killed. And not that I was just killed, but I was killed horribly terribly i was afraid i didn't have i was may have been crying out for her looking for someone to help and had none of that and then final moments were six seven bullets ripping through my body i tried to put myself in that and it was very challenging and i wept a lot three or four or five days it was just it was terrible uh but i'm grateful for that because that's what we have to do as artists that's what we have to mm. do as a composer at least that's what i do um and what came about was was my way home Like what you said about um, not just dealing with the beautiful things uh, in life, that has for sure. Uh, I, you're going to be episode 12 uh, of the podcast, and we have it's been a pretty strong theme with several of our um, guests. This idea of not just writing stuff that's mm -hmm. nice or pretty or comfortable. Um, choral music. I think for some, and, and for maybe even for a long time, and uh, I know that this is not exclusively true, that throughout history, people have written about some challenging things, but sometimes those pieces don't, um, they don't get put front and center 
they don't get talked about things that are uncomfortable or um, challenging or ugly. Um, and the pieces we think of first or that we celebrate the most seem to be just the, the, the ones that are about beautiful things. Mm -hmm. uh, and I am super passionate about our opportunity as choral musicians to be in the moment with the music, with the people in front of us, with the people listening, um, that, that choral music's best attributes are, are its immediacy uh, and the effect that it has on people right away, right, right now. And music that is challenging in, in those ways and in, in its topic, uh, I think do that really well um, and give us, give people uh, more to think about, more to feel. So I, I love the, the way you talked about that. Um, I, uh, I wanted to ask from a compositional standpoint, I know you said you wrote it quickly. Um, the, there's a sort of a little introduction mm -hmm. before the piece starts that also closes the piece, right? It kind of, this bookends. Um, and I wanted to know, uh, mostly just because I'm curious, was that, was the introduction, did you start at the beginning with this piece? Was the introduction something you wrote early or did you write all of this text and then it needed something? Did, the, did you write the outro? And then it became the intro. You know, where did that where did that come from? Yeah. If you remember, um, yeah, I do. <clears throat> um, I I I wrote the text. There was no music. I think that. It, oh, so hopefully this doesn't offend anyone. But if it does, sorry. Uh, I think that music written without the text in mind is you're missing the mark at some point. I think mm -hmm. they have to be. They have to be married together with intention. Like the intention has to be that the music takes what is already present in the text and elevates it, adds something to it, something in that fashion. So I, I came up with the text first and then obsessed over it for a while, as I tend to do. And then tried to find what, what I thought and what I felt was musically appropriate, again, to elevate the words. And then I couldn't. I could never find a way to start right on it. Like just dive in. I know my touch. Those are the first lines of the poem. Mm -hmm. um, so I like it. It needs something to kind of to set up that mood. Um, I think even the context of the first line or two, uh, it, I just it, there needs to be context. Like if you read it out of context, you may not know what it's about necessarily. So I tried to provide that context musically and harmonically and kind of set up a general emotional feeling with, with har harmonies, which became this, what, two or three measure um, pattern that appears in the middle of the piece and also closes the piece. Um, yeah. Yeah. I hope I, I hope I was successful. So yeah, well, it's a, it's a lovely piece. And um, uh, I believe I, I'm fairly certain I heard a recording online I think of your choir uh, singing it, of choir you conducted singing it. I may be wrong about that, but I think so. But I, I also know um, what a gift to have uh, Cantus sing your piece and, and they, you know, sing a few of them and, and um, you know, what a lovely performance they gave. And that must, uh, that must've felt pretty good, especially on this piece that you um, invested so much of yourself in, right? Your, your own yeah. poetry 
Um, and then to, to get a uh, performance from a group like that must have felt pretty good. Yeah, it was wonderful. And they're, they're just, they're special, man. I think that yeah. they, they're just wonderful. Just amazing group of men, amazing group of musicians, amazing, just, just wonderful human beings and musicians. So grateful yeah. for them. Yeah, for sure. Um, hey, I want to ask you about uh, a few non-music things uh, yeah. while, while we've got each other here. Um, you mentioned that uh, occasionally you wake up early in the morning that you might be headed to the gym. What uh, oh, yeah. are you listening? Are you listening to music at the gym? And if so, uh, what's on your playlist? What are you listening to at the gym? Oh, this is going to be embarrassing. Uh, <laughs> definitely have to have music. I'm the, I'm the kind of guy I can't. I think I'm too easily, easily distracted without, without music. And I can't stay focused and stay motivated um, consistently enough to get a great workout in. So, I mean, I listen to what I like. I mean, so here recently, I'm certain that some, some of the probably just think I'm completely insane because I'll just like <laughs> bust out laughing. But I've been listening to, to comedy, to comics oh, okay. while I'm working out, just, just working out and, and all that stuff. Um, so that's what's, what I'm currently listening to. I listen to, but, but so before this, like, last four or five months stint i would listen to you know whatever's on my play whatever i like so you know you you may hear brahms you may hear the brahms requiem and then the next thing will be Smokey norfolk that's my favorite singer on the face of the planet he's a gospel artist amazing singer uh then you may hear some luther vandross and then you may hear eric whitaker's um leonardo james of a sliding machine mm -hmm. then you you might hear the the um um uh, the UNT acapella choir or the um, Cal State Long Beach choir singing Let My Love Silence Haunts Me um, and then everything else like all the things like I, lo I, I love music and um, you may hear um, One Mic by Nas you might hear all the stuff like all the yeah. stuff like it's just eclectic all over the place um, and I kind of I kind of vacillate between between both. If I'm not doing comedy and listening to, to uh, what's the guy? There's a guy named Andrew Schultz. If you don't know this guy, he's basically just roasting people for yeah. his whole set, like his whole okay. comedy, comedy set. He's just roasting the audience, but it's hilarious in my opinion. Um, I also like Cat Williams. I love Gabriel Iglesias. Like I'm just, I just die laughing listening to these folks in, in the gym. So that's yeah. what's on my, my playlist. Let me tell you, uh, the early Cat Williams specials kill me. It Hilarious. is my my sister and I love these early Cat Williams specials, and still like she will she'll come and visit, or, or I'll go visit her, and that'll be what's on at the end of the night because it's it's just so funny, man. I, I mean, <laughs> I won't speak to um, him as a person in twenty twenty one. Uh, right. <laughs> but, but I can tell you his early comedy specials are funny. Yes, they uh, are. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, all right. Uh, your basketball guy, uh, who, who is your team? Who are your teams? Dallas maps in the story. Yeah. No more conversation. Okay. okay. <laughs> now let me ask you this. Uh, Chris Harris, the point guard, who did you model your game after? Allen Iverson. Iverson. All right. Definitely. 
Definitely. I mean, I'm a Jordan guy myself, but uh, no, but I, I understand. I understand. I get it. He's amazing, but Michael Jordan is less of a point guard uh, than, than, I mean, you could, you could almost argue the same thing about Allen Iverson too, but yeah. less of a point guard than maybe like a, a small forward or a scoring, a shooting guard. Uh, I mean, yeah. he did, he did run points sometimes, but I mean, Michael Jordan is, is, in my opinion, is, this is controversial. But in my opinion, it's the GOAT, the greatest of all it's, time. It's my not controversial. My favorite player, though, is Iverson. Okay, say it. It's say not it. controversial, and it's not an opinion. It's a fact, Jordan Period, is, story. is the GOAT. To take uh, nothing away from all the other amazing basketball players, I think Michael Jordan is the GOAT. Indeed. Uh, did you watch The Last Dance uh, on ESPN? I have not yet. Oh, man. I have not. It's, I mean, so I grew up uh, – I'm from Illinois – so I grew up a Bulls fan. I remember, I mean, I watched the Bulls through the 90s, didn't miss, you know, I mean, watched it all the time. I remember actually uh, when Jordan retired the first time, right, when he left uh, in in uh, 93, uh, I like, I mean, I cried. I like made it. This is how lame I was. Uh, I made a page in my scrapbook for Michael Jordan. Like, I'm just like crying and like, cutting out newspaper articles and pasting it into a scrapbook. Like somebody died. Uh, so I'm a big Jordan fan. You got to watch the last dance. It is uh it's great. Okay. Uh, bingeable television for sure. Great. I, I, I'll watch it. Maybe next, next time, if we do this again, I'll have watched it. We can talk about that. Yeah. And I want everybody to uh, picture Chris Harris playing balling out like Allen Iverson with a bunch of college kids on his campus. Or there's, I think there's actually video of oh. this. people took out cameras. It was like, Dr. Harris can actually hoop. And I mean, there may be some expletives. So if my now, administration see this, don't judge me, but now, Chris, you know, why actually is, reported it. Why is that not uh, tagged on your Instagram? Why can I not go see this online readily available? Uh, as I <laughs> as I referenced or implied, uh, made reference to a few seconds ago, there may have, I'm very competitive. There may have been a few three, four, five letter words <laughs> that may not, yeah. you know, I'm going up for tenure next year. Yeah. Maybe after I get tenure, we'll post those videos. That's that's what I want. I want that to be your tenure celebration. It's just you on the court. That's perfect. Right. <laughs> uh, so you said that you are a, a fan of binging television. Anything that you've been binging lately, stuff that you're uh, been really into? Hey, get me started. Okay. So I'm going to say all the things. So I'm going to give a shout out to all these. <laughs> great shows um okay so the most recent ones that i've binged good place uh love. game of thrones uh, love um uh what's the one? Oh my god shit's creek hilarious love. good yeah. stuff uh i'm currently watching attack on titan um which it's i'm only in season one so that's kind of a new a new thing man another one fresh off the boat uh, super underrated Great. right so un yeah for sure so good you know when i first got to russellville arkansas i was watching Grey's anatomy and <laughs> if you've never watched Grey's, i mean I, I hope many of you have but if you've never watched Grey's anatomy you talk about roller coaster of emotional experiences <laughs> such such a and they know how to how to, they know how to give a cliffhanger yeah keep you Keep you connected. So Grey's and I, awesome. There's one or two more that I want to say. Uh, so one of my students, Jordan Ladyman, this is your fault. I'm calling you out. Jordan Ladyman, if you watch this, this is your fault. 
there's a show that was horrible. And he said, Dr. Harris, have you ever watched Big Mouth? And I said, I don't even know what that is. He's like, just go, go to Netflix and go to Big Mouth. So if you're like easily offended, fast forward through this portion of the interview. <laughs> if, if, you, if, you can find, um, if you can find the value in the wit of, of Family Guy or the wit of South Park, which really and truly are quite witty. I think a lot of the, uh, people focus on like the really crass in your face jokes, mm -hmm. but there's a lot of wit that goes into there. If you can find value in that big mouth, if you can tolerate the ridiculously, again, I don't say this lightly, ridiculously offensive and crass humor, it's hilarious. <laughs> okay. I but don't know. Again, but Jordan Ladyman, it's his fault. I think Jordan Ladyman, Brady, Ramsey, uh, and Kelby Norton, it's your fault. Good. Now, so when we put this out uh, online, you'll have to tag them in uh, in a post on uh, Instagram or something to make sure that they get to this. We'll tag. We'll tell them it's. Uh, I don't know. We'll we'll find a minute marker or something. You can tell them to to tune in there. <laughs> I will. I will do that definitely. Good. Well, Chris, uh, I I I could talk to you about. Uh, fast food and basketball and uh tv and of course about your music uh for a lot longer uh but we're getting to a good spot to wrap up so uh i want to say thank you so much for doing this but i do i want to I, I have one more thing i want to ask you about mm -hmm. um or, or maybe just let you know about do you know that there is um what seems to be a, a hip-hop artist who is in uh pine bluff arkansas who also has the name Christopher Harris. And this gentleman has a LinkedIn page. And I want to read to you the first line of his bio. Are you, do you know this person? I don't. Okay. Christopher Harris, he's in Pine Bluff, Arkansas. So I thought it was funny that he's, he's kind of, you know, he's in your neck of the woods, as they say. Yeah, that's like, a, that's like an hour and like 20 minutes away. All right. So here is the first word of uh, first sentence of his biography. Original, devastatingly talented, hard at it, and gangster are just a few words one could use to describe the hardest unknown underground artist in Southeast Arkansas. Now, Chris Harris, I'm going to tell you, that may not be your bio, but you are original, devastatingly talented, hard at it, and gangster yourself. I appreciate you being on the show today, man. That's amazing. Uh, Thank you. I appreciate that. You just made so, my night. <laughs> well, good. Uh, I want to say uh, cheers, and uh, hopefully we'll do this in person Wait. sometime soon, man. Oh, yes, you got to fill up. Okay. <laughs> All right. Got Cheers, friend. There you go. Thank you for joining us for episode 12. Thank you to Chris Harris for the conversation. You can hear more of his music at charrismusic.com. If you haven't already, please rate and review the show wherever you stream your podcast. I appreciate your support. Whatever and Every Man is preparing for our upcoming Carols and Ales event at Ernest Brewworks in Toledo, Ohio. If you're listening from far away, join us on social media to see pictures and video from our live events. Our guest next time is Jocelyn Hagen, and we are looking forward to sharing a drink with you then. Thanks for listening, everybody. Cheers.